Aphrodite, a humorous Regency novel by D.G. Rampton. Chapter 23. The seating plan for dinner had been devised by Mrs. Delamere some days previously, with strict instructions that it was not to be altered. It had baffled April, for it appeared to follow no accepted rules, and, once her grandmother had accounted for the addition of the starlings, it was also absurdly imbalanced, with only three gentlemen amongst nine ladies. And now it was to be corrupted again. Leighton naturally objected when April shared the news with him, and she had to spend some time coaxing him out of his sullens by reminding him that, for her mother's sake, it was imperative that made a good impression on Lord Bulfingston. He agreed at last, and thereafter offered up no more than a dozen or so grumblings on the ill omen of having thirteen sit down to dinner. They decided to put Lord Bulfingston at the foot of the table, in the spot that had been assigned to his son. This had the dual advantages of recognising his status within the extended family and, at the same time, placing him as far away from Lady Hartwood, seated at the table's head, as was possible. April gave Lord Paisley her own seat beside Hugh and had an extra place set for herself on Lord Wolfingston's right. She hoped this sacrifice on her part would shield the other guests from the Earl's temperament, as well as remove her from Hugh's vicinity. Some fifteen minutes later, as the guests entered the dining room and began to seat themselves, April's sacrifice was dealt a death blow by her grandmother. Mrs. Delamere took in the changes at a glance, and, dropping a word in Lord Paisley's ear, gave up her place to him and sat herself in the chair intended for April beside Lord Wolfingston. April was annoyed to see the upshot of this manoeuvring was that she once more found herself seated beside Hugh. If her grandmother was not so adamant that she secure the Duke's affections, she would have had little choice at this point but to indulge in some rather absurd suspicions. Although it did occur to her that her relative might simply wish to sit beside Lord Wolfingston and continue to taunt him. That, however, did not explain why the dear contrary woman had placed the Duke on the opposite side of the table between Miss Starling and Miss Beechcroft. She was suddenly pulled out of her thoughts by the awareness that Hugh and herself were the only ones still standing, and that he was holding out her chair and waiting, his amused eyes resting on her. She quickly walked over to him. Thank you, she murmured. Brushing past him in her hurry, she caught a faint trace of his scent. It was not the first time she had inhaled it, but for some reason, tonight, she found it extraordinarily intoxicating. Mingled with the earthy tones of male, there was an elusive note of something else, something she could not quite place. Have you lost your balance? he asked, putting a hand on her elbow. She was startled to realise she had come to a standstill and was leaning into him. Um, yes, she replied, colouring. Dear God, what was wrong with her? One did not go about sniffing one's guests. It must surely be a rule in one of those absurd instructional tomes for ladies. And if it wasn't, then it should be. Sitting down abruptly, she gave her attention to Mrs. Jameson on her right, and remained talking to her for a good half hour before she dared to take a peek in Hugh's direction. He was looking decidedly bored as he listened to his future mother-in-law give her opinion on the perceived transgressions of her servants, and it struck April how unhappily he was placed. 
What had her grandmother been thinking to put Mrs. Starling beside him? Anyone with a few minutes' acquaintance of their characters would have realised the two of them should never be placed beside each other for any appreciable amount of time. But what was worse, in April's opinion, Hugh had an unobstructed view, directly opposite him, of his fiancée's attempts to hold the Duke's attention. The smiles Miss Starling offered his grace were a little too sparkling, and the way she thanked him for passing the creamed peas a little too excessive to appeal to a man of Hugh's temperament. However, to do Miss Starling justice, her efforts paled when compared to those of Miss Beechcroft. This young lady had clearly warmed to her role as a reigning beauty and had studied the art of flirtation. She grazed against the Duke's arm when she spoke to him, thrust her impressive bosom forward when his eyes were on her, laughed at every mildly humorous remark he uttered, and teased him in an overly familiar manner that proclaimed their close acquaintance. Placed as he was between these two determined ladies, one brimming with amiability and the other confident and coquettish, the besieged Duke was given little opportunity to eat his dinner. April found the whole performance absurd and had to bite on the bottom of her lip to hold in her laughter. Laugh all you want, Hugh said quietly. No one is watching you. She looked across at him a little guiltily. I had not realised I was so transparent. You're not, he told her. I must be. You read me easily enough. I was watching for your reaction. You mean you are waiting for me to slip up? She replied, throwing him an amused glance. And now you have discovered my secret. I can be downright ill-mannered when something pricks my sense of humour. I won't betray you. The look in his eyes as he said this and smiled held her mesmerised. Frankincense! She burst out all of a sudden, startling them both. Pardon? he asked. April looked away in confusion and shook her head. Part denial, part apology. She cut a piece of the partridge on her plate and hurriedly put it into her mouth. Hugh did not press her, much to her relief, although he did continue to watch her while she ate, until Miss Beechcroft's laughter rang out once more and diverted his attention. She's untiring, he observed blandly. She's also very beautiful and undoubtedly used to being the centre of attention, said April, happy to speak on a different subject. So are you, but I'm yet to see you behave in such a manner, he put in. The compliment flustered her, and she found herself admitting, I do not like to be the centre of attention. If I did, I might be tempted to make the most of people's ridiculous reactions to me. Don't you enjoy being beautiful? he asked with genuine interest. I rarely think of my looks, that is, until people begin to act strangely around me. I take it they act strangely rather often, he asked with a quirk of his lips. Too often, she sighed. Beauty is absurdly prized in our society, but I have rarely found it to be an advantage. All it has ever done for me is to place a barrier between myself and others, and few have bothered to look beyond to the person underneath. Hugh remained silent, his gaze fixed on her as if he were trying to see into her very soul. Both ill at ease and exhilarated by his scrutiny, and not at all certain as to why she had chosen to confide in him on such a personal matter, she said off-handedly, I know I probably sound ridiculous. 
Hugh looked down at his glass of burgundy as he played with the stem of the finely shaped crystal. No, you don't, he said after a moment. I simply have never considered the matter from such a perspective. I do not suppose you've had cause to, she remarked, and took a sip of wine. Hugh looked up with a quick smile. I've never been hampered by good looks, but it's hardly polite of you to point it out, he said. April choked a little on her wine. I did not mean that, she informed him indignantly, when she could speak. You know I did not. Do I? he asked. Oh, do not pretend, she shot back at him. You are fishing for compliments by forcing me to say it. You must know perfectly well how attractive you are. Disappointment flared in Hugh's eyes. He suspected her of flattering him, and experience had taught him to be wary of women who offered him compliments. More often than not, they wanted something from him. But then he noticed the telltale signs of annoyance and embarrassment on her countenance, and realised, with some surprise, that she was in earnest. I seem to have fallen into the habit of making easy assumptions, he remarked. My apologies. He would have said more had not Mrs. Starling captured his attention at this point with a light, persistent tug on his sleeve. He tore his gaze away from April, telling himself it was for the best, and she was left to wonder over the strangeness of his reply. Once the superb dinner that Monsieur Balzac and his team had worked tirelessly to prepare was at an end, the ladies retired to the drawing room and left the men to enjoy their port at the dinner table. This time-honoured segregation was not allowed to last long, however, for Lord Paisley had been given strict instructions by his betrothed, and within half an hour was shepherding his grace, Lord Wolfingston and Hugh out of the dining room and down the corridor to the drawing room. When everyone was together once more, Lady Hartwood organised for the tea tray to be placed beside the drinks trolley, dismissed her staff from the room, and tasked April and Hugh with serving the refreshments. Next, she charmingly flattered Miss Starling and Miss Beechcroft into taking turns to play the piano and sing, and informed His Grace it would be his pleasure to turn the pages for their lovely entertainers. She then paired Mrs Starling with Lord Paisley, and the Duchess with her friend Mrs Beechcroft, and settled the four of them at the card table in the corner to play whist. Her duties finished for the moment, she joined her mother, Lord Wolfingston, and Mrs Jameson on the arrangement of seats near the fire, to where Mrs Delamere had ushered her companions while her daughter was following through with her instructions. As Lady Hartwood sat down beside her, Mrs Delamere retired from the enjoyable task of provoking Lord Wolfingston and left Mrs. Jameson to hold his attention with a ribald story about a mutual acquaintance. They are avoiding one another, she told her daughter in a quiet voice, and they are both pig-headed enough to continue to do so until it is too late. Lady Hartwood nodded in agreement and said unhappily, I know, utterly vexing. Together they watched April and Hugh as they moved around the room serving the guests, they appeared to be performing some strange dance that ensured they never came within ten feet of one another. Albert told me yesterday that the wedding is now fixed for the last Saturday in January, said Lady Hartwood. I had hoped it wouldn't come to this, but as we are running out of time, do you think we should force the issue? No, replied her mother. At least not yet. 
they still believe it is mere attraction between them, and where there is honour, attraction can be held at bay. If we are to be successful, we must wait until they realise they are in love. I can't help but feel they are more than half in love already, said Lady Hartwood. If only they would open their eyes. I have every intention of opening their eyes, returned Mrs. Delamere. All that is required is a little resolution to create the opportunities that will throw them together and bind them inexorably. April appeared at her mother's elbow just then and handed her a cup of tea. And who are these poor creatures you have decided must be inexorably bound together? She asked playfully. Lower your voice, admonished Mrs. Delamere and rolled her eyes in the direction of Mrs. Jameson and Lord Wolfingston. Really? I find that hard to believe, April responded with a droll look. I have my suspicions you are planning to take his grace away from me by pairing him with Miss Beechcroft. Or Miss Starling, said her grandmother, watching her closely. April's smile faltered, and she said sharply, Miss Starling is betrothed to Mr. Royce. What has that to do with anything, said Mrs. Delamere. Betrothals are broken all the time. Do not even think it, April exclaimed softly. And why not? Think of the advantages. Advantages for whom? pressed April suspiciously. For Hugh, certainly, retorted Mrs. Delamere. But also for Miss Starling, love, Lady Hartwood offered up in a more conciliatory tone. When one thinks on it a little, it becomes clear she will be better off with some mild-tempered young man who dotes on her. And I believe we can all agree dear Hugh is not that man. You both seem to forget they are attached to one another, said April, showing greater certainty than she felt on the subject. Fiddlesticks, snapped Mrs. Delamere. You have strayed into a world of make-believe, if that is what you believe. There's more attachment between myself and my coachman than there is between those two. April felt torn between a sense of jubilation that this sentiment was likely to be true and a wish to argue against it. She ignored both impulses. We must remember they are of age and perfectly capable of handling their own affairs, she said sternly. Clearly not, Mrs. Delamere responded. If they were, they'd never have gotten themselves into this mess. April threw her grandmother an exasperated look and walked off to continue with her duties. End of chapter 23